This is Gil Manser, your host for North Bay Public Media's Word-by-Word Conversations with Writers on KRCB-FM. Today's guest is Elizabeth George, creator of the best-selling Inspector Lindley Mysteries. She's going to introduce us to her 19th book in the series, A Banquet of Consequences. (laughs) Since many readers first encountered Scotland Yard's dapper detective Inspector Thomas Lindley and his down-to-earth partner Sergeant Barbara Havers on PBS's British-produced masterpiece mystery TV shows, you may be surprised to learn that Elizabeth George is an American who lives on picturesque Whidbey Island in Washington State. Elizabeth has a teaching certificate from UC Riverside and earned her master's in counseling and psychology from Cal State Fullerton while teaching high school English. She was also elected Orange County, California's Teacher of the Year. In 1988, Elizabeth's first mystery novel, A Great Deliverance, won an Edgar and Agatha Award as well as France's Le Grand Prix de Literature Policier. Elizabeth also has a four-book YA paranormal mystery romance series that takes place, not surprisingly, on Whidbey Island. The first of these, The Edge of Nowhere, introduces us to the resilient young Becca King. Elizabeth George, I'd like to welcome you to Word by Word. Thank you. It's very great to be here. All right. We're going to talk about your young novels, too, during this conversation. Because I think people need to hear about them and how you've managed to create characters at that age group. You said elsewhere that your books are not just crime novels, but they are character novels. Right. As a psychological educator, I'm intrigued by this distinction, and especially the carefully crafted examples of abnormal psychology displayed in A Banquet of Consequences. Did this skill derive from your background in counseling psych? Uh, It it really comes from two areas. Uh, really, may, well, maybe three areas. Uh, in the in the first place, I've always been interested in um, aberrant human behavior for my entire <laughs> life, ever since I was a child. Must be fun to live with. And well, it, it helps okay. if you're a little crazy, I right. guess. But but um, I've I've always found that that kind of that kind of behavior um, interesting, fascinating, and uh, deeply worth looking into. And in A Banquet of Consequences, that was one of the things that I wanted to do. Um, Additionally, my degree was in counseling and psychology, and that gave me a lot of insight into developing characters and what I could do with characters that I was creating from scratch. And then um, also, the the, uh, with each book, I've tried to explore um, you know, a little a, a twist on on human psychopathology, and I've tried to take a look at various elements of of psychopathology as they appear in people under stress, and what could be more stressful than being either involved in a murder investigation or the uh, family of the victim of the crime itself. Right. Right. So I'm going to use a little regression therapy in a sense and push you back to 1987 or so mm-hmm. when you're creating the first book in the series and your characters. Well, did your characters come first or your plot? 
The characters came first because I was determined to write a crime novel. Mm -hmm. And in order to write a crime novel, the what you have to begin with is who are your criminalists? Who are these people going to be? And that really needs to come in advance of the crime, or at least it did for me. So I created the characters first and then um, began working on the crime after that. Having said that, I had taught a class at El Toro High School called The Mystery Story. Mm. And when I taught the course, I really had to deconstruct mysteries. As I deconstructed them, I began to think that I could write one of these myself, and I'd always wanted to be a writer. However, when I got into it, I discovered that what I really wanted to, to write was the crime novel, which is different from the mystery novel. So that began my my career as I began to explore what constituted a crime novel versus what constituted a mystery novel, and not only that, but how these things were written in the modern world, because my reading prior to actually writing these books was all in the golden age of mystery in Great Britain. So I was used to crime novels or mystery novels in which the detective shepherds everyone into the library at the end and <laughs> reveals who the murderer is. And the well, murderer, were you in this room? And you in yeah, the, exactly. Yeah, the clue, and the, in other words. Yeah, yes. it explains the clues, right. and then the murderer conveniently... Uh, it usually confesses that at that point to get caught or yes. runs out and you know, runs out and gets hit by a car or usually or something too. like yeah. that yeah <laughs> that's convenient saves yes the, yes very saves convenient the state money right? yeah really so did you keep uh, consider these people to be a, a pair when you thought of them did lindley come before barbara havers or there's got to be cuz these are these are characters who are Beloved, they have taken on a life of their own, separate from you. Well, interestingly, uh, when I began the series, Lindley wasn't going to be one of the main characters, and Barbara Habers didn't even exist. Ah. The main character was always going to be the forensic um, scientist, Simon St. James. Ah. And Lindley was going to be the person who came to him with various aspects of a crime that needed to be looked into or further investigated. And Simon was Lindley's best friend yes. who ended up marrying his love. Y yes, uh, yes. Lindley's love. Yes, right. exactly. Um, but when I – so I wrote the very first two books in the series with Simon St. James as the main character. Mm. <clears throat> But neither of those books got published, and so <laughs> okay. I decided with so my – So you've really done 21 books. Yeah. I decided with my third attempt that I would see if this guy Lindley, who worked at Scotland Yard, after all, could solve a crime himself. In order to do that, I thought, well, he really needs to have a partner. So then I created Barbara Havers, who became his partner and then has stayed as his his partner and his or his colleague throughout the series, and so the series kind of skewed its direction and skewed its attention onto those two characters to a greater degree, and onto St. James and Deborah to a lesser degree. So I assumed you'd visited uh, England during this time of creation. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I had at that point when I first began writing this these novels, I had been to England a number of times. Um, but I had not yet 
gone to England with the intention of researching a place to set a book there. I'd been going as a tourist. Uh, I'd been going to see specific locations just because I wanted to see those locations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For example, a Middleham Castle where uh, where Richard III and his wife Anne, Anne Neville lived, mm-hmm. and uh, various abbeys that had significance, various homes of writers that were beloved to me. So that was the kind of thing that I did initially. Then when I decided I was going to write British crime novels, then I began going to England specifically in order to see an area to use as a location in the book. And when you were there, I assume you noticed the uh, the class structure. Well, it's it's very hard to avoid the class structure <laughs> yes, in England, not only um, because we see it so often depicted on, on television and shows like uh, Masterpiece Theater, but also because it, it plays out in everyday life. In England as well, through you know, through the various jobs that people have, mm-hmm. their how levels, they're dressed. yeah, the, how yeah. they're dressed, their levels of education, how they treat each other, all of that uh, is makes it very obvious that there is a a, a class system in England, and it's it is uh, determined not the way class is in the United States by money. But by uh, the the age of one's blood, you know how long your family has been on this on this piece of land, ordering other people around, right, you know, right. that kind of thing. And you could be as poor as a church mouse, but still be in uh, a member of the aristocracy. So there's nothing whatsoever to do with money. Right. Well, Barbara Havers, of course, is the uh, the working class person, mm-hmm. but she's obviously very smart. I mean, mm-hmm. we have to. She's already went through the you know the the requirements and the the tests that are necessary to become a sergeant in a very elite force. Certainly, mm-hmm. Scotland Yard is a the, one of the top, the top, you know, places to be if you're a, want to investigate murders, right? Well, well, I'll, let me answer the Barbara Havers part first. Um, yeah, she is. She's she's perfectly intelligent, but she went to went to school only to uh, to a certain level, and then from that point went on to become a police policewoman. Um, it, it's, it's not often that you would see uh, a university graduate in England then become a policeman, policewoman, although certainly it does happen. And at the it's higher levels, more frequently now. Yeah, yeah, and at the higher levels, you would, have, you would have men and women of probably more significant education. And by higher levels, I mean at the, at the detective, uh, detective chief constable, deputy chief constable, those, those assistant chief constable, those people probably all have, you know, pretty good, pretty good educations. But, um, but starting out, they wouldn't necessarily have that. Barbara, of course, did not. Um, but yeah, you're right. She isn't. She isn't a dumb person at all. No, not at all. She's actually maybe a better uh, detective than Lindley, in some sense. Well, in the sense that she probably takes bigger risks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and I think that she is. Her passions lead her astray, but she is, uh, and she's often led by the heart. But she certainly has no. Um, no fear of bullying people around when it's going to get her where she needs them to be. Right, right. Well, what? let's pick up where Barbara is in A Banquet of Consequences. In the previous book, she 
took off to Italy. So fill right. us up a little bit about what happened and how she ended up there. Well, in the in the previous book, she went wildly off the rails uh, by going by going to Italy without authorization to do so. What had happened in the book is that her neighbor, um, Timola Azar, her longtime neighbor, had re- had reconciled with his. Uh, the mother of his child, whom he has never married. And she came back to him after a period of being gone several years. During that time, it looked as if they were going to be able to live together in peace, unity, love, etc. But what he didn't know is that this was all uh, a plan on her part to put him into a position of feeling at ease with her and trusting her. And then when she had the chance, she kidnapped the the little girl, Hadia, who had only lived with her father. She'd never lived alone with her mother before. She'd only been with her father. So uh, that's how um, Believing the Lie, two books ago, ended. And when this book, the the previous book, um, a book called Just One Evil Act, started, it started with the fact that this little girl had been kidnapped and um, Barbara is becomes involved in that, and then when uh, when they are able to trace down where the little girl has been, um, that her mom has taken her to Italy, then she is truly kidnapped in in, in Italy. And at that point, um, Azar, her father, is frantically going to Italy to to to, to see this pro, to see to this problem and close on his heels goes Barbara Habers well of course she tries to uh get permission to do this but she has at that point alienated her superior officer because she has also revealed to a scurrilous british tabloid the fact that the girl has been kidnapped and nobody from London police is bothering to do anything about it. And and she suggests that it's because she's a, a mixed-race little girl. And this wouldn't have happened if it had been a little blonde girl with ringlets, you know. So that really infuriates her um, her superior officers. And ultimately, she's in big trouble with them and takes herself off to Italy to help with the investigation there. So she's in big she's in big trouble on all sides. So when she comes back, uh, she's sort of put on probation, I guess we could call. Yeah, it. Yeah, when she when she gets comes back and everything is resolved in that book, when she comes back, she has to face her superior officer Isabel Artery, and Isabel, um, it was just she's had it with her. She wants to be rid of her, but the only thing that she can really do is have Barbara sign transfer papers, that in which she she herself is pretending that she has filed these papers to go up to the north of England to this um, unfortunately dismal little town. Well, dismal, not li- not so little town called Berwick upon Tweed. So it's kind of the place nobody would really want to end up. Right. But she's filled out this paperwork, and that's how Isabel controls her. That's the sword hanging her. over yeah. her head. Yes. Yeah. So what she has done in response is to become as un-Barbara as possible. Yes, because she's she's worried if she steps out of line in any way that Isabel will file that paperwork. So in order to that not to have that not happen, she's been she's been towing the line, but she's been towing the line to an extreme. 
in that she's not even willing to offer any ideas. She's not willing to disagree with anyone. She's not willing to go out on a limb, take any risks anymore. And that equates to her not really doing a very good job. Right. So Lindley goes to uh, Isabel Ardry, who's their superintendent. Right. And says, what can we do about this? And uh, gets a, well, I don't know. I'm not sure, but she can always transfer. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Isabel's quite happy with her the That's way she right. is. That's right. That's one of the things she however, says. However, since this is one of your novels, there's another character in the mix who we haven't seen much before. I don't remember her at all. Detective Secretary Dorothy uh, Yeah, she's not, a, she's not a detective. She's a department, no, she's department departmental secretary. secretary right. Sorry, yeah. right. Departmental secretary. Yes, yeah, she's always been there, and this time she gets a bigger role. She's one of those in the background. Yes, yes. She's one of the continuing characters who's always had a minor role. So she uh, decides to she corrals Lindley and takes right. him out into the hallway. Yeah. If you could start there, where it says start, not too hard, and then, and then go to there. I okay. appreciate that. So tell me, he went on, what is it that she's not thinking about that she actually ought to be thinking about? And he's referring to Barbara Havers. Right. Dorothea looked patently startled at the question. Goodness, it's what everyone else is always thinking about, Detective Inspector Lindley. I'm intrigued. Go on. Sex, she said. Sex. He glanced around the stairwell to emphasize what he was about to say. Dorothea, ought we to be having this conversation? Sexual harassment being all the rage, you mean? Detective Inspector Lindley, let's please set political correctness aside for a moment and just get down to facts. Dorothea indicated the stairwell with a manicured hand, by which she also indicated the met. Detective Sergeant Havers needs to think like the rest of humanity. She's always needed that, which means she needs to think of something more than the Met, her job, and being transferred. Sex is just the ticket for that, and I suspect you know it as well as I do. Call it love, romance, making babies, finding a soulmate, settling down, or anything else you like. It all comes down to the same thing at the end of the day, a mate. The detective sergeant needs an outlet. She needs someone special so that her whole entire world is not this place. Lindley eyed her. You're suggesting Barbara needs to find a man, aren't you? I am. She needs a love life. We all need a love life. Have you ever known the detective sergeant to have one? You don't even need to answer me. No, she hasn't had one, and that's why she keeps falling afoul of D. Has it occurred to you that not every woman on the planet wants or even needs a man? Dorothea took a step backwards, her smooth brow creased. Heavens, Detective Inspector, are you suggesting the Detective Sergeant is an asexual being? No? Then what? Not that she's... That's completely ridiculous. I don't believe it. Because she and that professor, her neighbor, the man with the lovely little daughter... She paused, looked thoughtful. On the other hand, there is her hair and the strange lack of interest in makeup, and her absolutely appalling dress sense. But still, have we gone down the rabbit hole, Lindley asked, or is this merely an intriguing illustration of random thinking? Dorothea looked flustered, which was entirely unlike her, but she gathered herself together heroically. No matter, all that's to be decided, she said obscurely, but we'll use her professor friend as an example. Timul Azar, Lindley told her, the daughter's called Hadia. They were Barbara's neighbors. What are we using them as examples of? What she needs, Dorothea clarified. What she might have had had they not left the country. 
Barbara and Azar. Let me clarify just to be sure he was on the right track. What they might have had together. Indeed. Sex. Yes, sex. A relationship. A love affair. A romance. Had things gone that way, she'd be a different woman. You mark my words. And being a different woman is what she needs. And the way to get there, the entire process of getting her there, I can be of help. (laughs) For some reason, the concept of sex and Barbara Havers, you know, really had not, other than the frisson between her and Lindley, you know, because they really... Well, There's they, been some almost kiss moments. Well, that would only or be certainly on the embracing moments. Well, I think that's more on the television show. Okay, because certainly in the books that there there has never never been a single almost kiss moment, um, because that is not the nature of their relationship. Although they do love each other very dearly as as individuals and would you know easily die for the other person, but it's not a sexual love. It's the love of of two individuals who work together and learn to respect each other and have each other's backs. Yeah, stronger than collegial because they do indeed love each other. And uh, but but uh, there has never been anything sexual between them or even a frisson. But on the television show, they showed that. And the reason that they did is they wanted to uh, keep the reader thinking that something might happen between this man and woman. Of course, they knew it would be over my dead body that, uh-huh. anything, that anything would have happened between those two characters because that's just not that's not who they are and that's not how they relate to each other. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about the difference between the TV show and mm-hmm. your books in just a bit, but I want to continue on with, with this wonderful do-over concept. So um, it's all set up and um, Dorothea takes... Barbara to a open air market, mm-hmm. and that's where she shops and gets right. all her. You know, she has some some great things that she paid maybe full price for. Or got it? Yeah, a, a few shop. basic pieces. Right. Yeah. So, but then she does all the accessorizing from what she finds in the stalls. Right. Right. And Barbara couldn't care less. No, no. She takes Barbara there because she feels she's revealing her great secret because everybody knows at the yard that Dorothea really does dress beautifully. And she takes her and and shows her all of these different – these racks and racks of clothes. And all the prices that are given in the book are actually accurate of this market (laughs) because you can get anything there. I mean I wandered around looking at at these, you know, suits of clothes for 20 pounds and things. But uh, so when she takes Barbara there, Barbara is not – in the least interested, but she discovers that on an adjacent street, there's an open-air food Mm -hmm. market with all these stalls selling food. So that's where she goes while Dorothy is shopping for clothing. And in the convoluted sense of all what good novels, while she's there, she happens to see something about a new book that has come out that has got the title of, was it Waiting for Mr. Darcy? Looking Looking for Mr. Mr. Darcy. Darcy. Here we are. And that is written by a, uh, I guess you would call her a feminist yes, author. Yes, yes. Who has a very decided idea of where men fit in the world in relation to women. It's become a bestseller. Yes. And eventually, uh, through lots of strange things, uh, Barbara ends up going to the book sign. Yes, because she reads the uh, she reads the title of the book and then uh, remembers it and then – that night, I believe, yeah, it's that night when she's at home doing her 
doing her washing her knickers in the kitchen sink, which is where she washes them, she turns on the radio and she hears this this woman's voice, very unusual kind of gravelly voice. She's being interviewed, and she's that's a lively interview between her and a, and a man, and he is questioning her about men and women, and mm-hmm. it turns out that this is the author. And she is talking about the book, Looking for Mr. Darcy, and she will be appearing the following evening at um, Bishopsgate Institute, I think is where I, I placed her. Mm-hmm. And so so because she's such an interesting person to listen to, Barbara decides decides to go and, and hear her. So she decides to buy a book, and she's going to give it to Dorothea because she That's knows right. that will be right up. That's right. Just get all of her, her yeah. you know, synapses moving. Yeah, because the whole point of the book is that it, that the it's you know the myth of happily ever after the the myth of you know the romantic ideal happily ever after love marriage you know books end on happily ever after they don't show you what it was like afterwards. So uh, she wants Dorothea to have this book, so she goes there to. Purchase the copy for which, in, you know, indeed, that's what she does. I think you might have done some background of being in a in a, a book signing event. With people <laughs> yeah. yeah, really, right? But that's exactly what happens, and so um, Barbara ends up, um, and the woman whose name is Claire Abbott, the mm-hmm. author, looks at her across the table and admires her T-shirt, right? Which and Barbara likes to get, you know, special. Yeah, little so special quirky, T-shirts. Yes. Yeah, sayings printed on the front. She says, "Where did you get that?" And Barbara says, "Well, I know a place. Here, just let me know, and I'll mail you one." And um, right, the cards are exchanged. And then, as Barbara is leaving, a woman named Caroline, um, last name, give me your name, Goldacre, Goldacre arrives, and that's her, uh, the author's sort of assistant. Yeah, she's her personal assistant. Personal assistant. Yeah. 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 Who's she, the one who was getting everyone in line and making sure they were in the yes. place. And she she retrieves the her, her That's uh, right. Yeah. She said card. that's her job is to – Claire just gives out her cards willy-nilly and then can't figure out why all these people are getting in touch with her. And so her job is to get the cards back. So she's a definitely a control freak. Yes, yes. But a not-so-control freak is the author's editor, right. Rory, who Rory. comes over and uh, gives her and Barbara another card to replace the first one and says, don't pay any attention to that woman. She's overstepping her bounds. Exactly, right. exactly, yes, because Rory knows that uh, you know she's had she has had um, run-ins with Caroline Goldacre before, and she knows that Claire, how controlling the woman is, and she, her point is if Claire gave you her card, it's because she wants you to have her card. Right. So take it. And hands her another one. Well, I think it's time probably to meet the Goldacre family, don't you? Well, yeah. Because we met them 39 months before. That's right. That's when we meet the Goldacres. And now, right. yeah. And so when you see Caroline Goldacre, then yes. you... Say, I know her from exactly. when she was the mother of these two boys. Yes, and, and from married, 39 months before. And married Alistair, who has a bakery. That's right. That's right. She is a... Challenging mother. Mm-hmm. Is that a good word? Yeah, yeah. She's pretty challenging. And challenging anything. I think her relationships with India. She has a difficult time with India, who's her, you know, her daughter-in-law. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Says, "Call me mum," and India's not sure about that, but mm-hmm. she goes along and yeah, kind of. She wants to control, control freak. Yeah, she wants to control. She wants to. Uh, she wants things on on her terms, and she's been able to get away with that for a long time. Right. 
The youngest son is named William Goldacre, and uh, he has a girlfriend named Lily Foster, who's a tattoo artist, mm -hmm. right? And they are in London. Mm -hmm. And um, finally, William tr convinces her to try to come out to the countryside to Dorset. Right, because he he has a tough time in London. And oh, he has a tough time in general, and we're not sure why, but he right. suffers from this affliction that he calls uh, the wording, where well, he— For one part, he's actually suffering from a variety of well, yeah. symptoms. Yeah. Yes, and uh, and so so he feels that he cannot make it in London. It's way too stressful living there. He wants to go back to where he was living before— he moved to London, which is out in, in, in Shaftesbury, mm -hmm. out in Dorset. And he wants uh, Lily, the tattoo artist, to go To come along also. with him. Right, yeah. right. And, yeah. and set up her shop there. Right. There's got to be a market there because yeah. nobody else is in town. That's right. That's right. That's right. I don't see Dorset tattoos <laughs> yeah, really. in the same sentence, but yeah. you managed to do that. Now, But uh, she, of course, you know, is not, not – excited about that idea no, at all. No, she's not. In fact, she's left him, moved out of his flat. Yes, and yes, And so the lives. mother and stepfather come to pick him up. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the most interesting scenes in the book. I can't have you read it because the swear words are not allowed to be said on the radio. Mm. But William um, has what I, what do we call it, caprolalia. Yeah, yeah. Which means that you use lots of swear words and kind of vomit them forward. And they're, they're lots, they're, they're t done to shock. Well, yeah, and it's it's sort of this uh, affliction of language that just bursts out, but not like Tourette's, where no. it's just the one word all of a sudden. But it's this whole—it's kind of a nonsense, nonsense sentences. A lot of words within the sentence being uh, being what we would consider foul language. Yeah, right. and this is triggered as he's looking out of the window of his flat with his mother and father and um, stepfather arriving. Yeah, because he's up. and because he's been there alone. I think at that point for four days. Right. And uh, he's he, supposed to have packed, but hasn't yes, done anything. Yes, yeah, he can't do. He is supposed to have packed, and um, and so be, during those four days, being alone in the flat, the the uh, his anxiety has built and built and built, and now it's now it's at the breaking point. Right. Well, what happens is Barbara sends Alistair, a stepfather, down to the car. So Caroline does. Caroline does. I'm sorry. Caroline does, and um, Caroline's the mom. Basically, she slaps her son and says, stop it. Yeah, she says, get yourself under control. Get yourself under control. Yeah. And this is a – there's a thing that happens here, and I hope readers will see what happens, is you've had a variety of characters who you really don't care for very much. They're all a little um, aberrant mm -hmm. to my mind. And then Alistair is in the car, and he's recalling when he first met his wife. 17 years ago, and how he fell deeply in love mm -hmm. with this woman who lied to him at mm -hmm. first, saying that the two boys who were with her at the pantomime were actually her nieces when they were her sons. Her nephews. Her, her nephews. <laughs> I'm they, sorry. Her <laughs> nephews. See, we're going to be non-sexist <laughs> here today. And um, he doesn't care that she lied. No, no. He doesn't see that it's a pattern. No, he does not see that it's a pattern. At all. He is one of the most – I find him to be one of the most interesting parts of the book because he can look at things with a different perspective. 
Yes, and I think also though his his own sense of, he has this tremendous sense of unworthiness too because because he was never able to do what he really wanted to do which was to be this military man and because of his foot. Because yes, because because of his uh because his one leg is shorter than the other and etc. And so because of that he's really vulnerable when a woman like Caroline comes on to him because and she's quite lovely when he when he meets her and voluptuous and all of a sudden here's this woman who appears to be interested in him and he's quite taken with 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 that right and so when he asks her when he starts talking about his shop i think it's and he gives her the the address of where his shop is right. and then she shows up to and see his he shop he's repurposing we'll call them antiques for want of a better yeah, word yeah but... it's more like stuff you know, junk. Like fans you turn into a light or exactly. something. Exactly. Yes, yes, like that. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. he's good at it. And he's, and he's and able to get good money. Yes. Make good money from it. But that's not what he ends up doing. He ends up buying a bakery when he moves. Right. To because she Caroline wants, lives. yeah, because she wants to go out of, she wants to leave London. Because remember, when she's, when she's first meets him, they live in, she lives in London in Bronsbury Park with the, with Francis Goldacre. Right. And so, uh, but when she gets um, Alistair interested in her, then the big thing is she wants to move out to the countryside. You are listening to Word by Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media's KRCB-FM. We are chatting with Elizabeth George, creator of 19 best-selling Inspector Lindley Mysteries featuring Scotland Yard's Detective Inspector Thomas Lindley and his down-to-earth partner, Detective Sergeant Barbara Havers. Elizabeth has introduced us to her latest book, A Banquet of Consequences. And in the next half hour, we'll talk about her distinctive writing style and the alternative continuity between her novels and the PBS Mystery TV series. So you prepared? Sure. Okay. So we have uh, Alistair out in the car. We have uh, the mother and son upstairs. They convince him to move home, come back Mm -hmm. home. Uh, he convinces his uh, girlfriend to come visit and sets up a camping retreat. A trip, yeah. They're going yeah. to go camping. On the edge of a cliff over the sea. Yeah, they're going to an area that um, that has two great cliffs and a, a little town that's tucked in between the two cliffs. And on one of the sides of the, on one of the two cliffs is a camping area. The other one is a huge hike. It's called Golden Cap. And you can hike up to the top and get a tremendous view. And so they, you know, they do the hike and then they establish this little camping spot on the opposite cliff. Mm -hmm. And that's where they spend the night. Right. He wakes up in the morning, goes and gets coffee, you know, nearby a mile or two away at the little storeette, Mm -hmm. right? And she wakes up and finds his diary, we'll call it, I guess, his Yeah, notebook. yeah. She's, when she wakes up and he's not there, she's very thirsty. And they've had some, they had some food in a, in a rucksack and some uh, water as well. So she upends the rucksack to, to see what, what's left of the food and water that they have. And she finds it. But what also falls out of it is, uh, is a, a journal, journal that he has kept. And, and she sees that, um, part, that what this appears to be is, designs for gardens he's a garden quite a talented garden designer and she sees that it's a it's a whole lot of sketches and she's leafing through looking at the sketches but then she notices that it also contains uh what appear to be journal entries and so she begins to read them one of which is sounds like a suicide note yes 
Well, I'm thinking of killing. I may may have to kill myself. There's well, in there somewhere. no, no, there, no, there's no? no, 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 there's no suicide note at all. Okay, not well, at all. Do I remember that wrong? How yeah, could I possibly not remember because that? that's not what she. No, that's not. What I she know reads. that's not yeah. correct. We find out later certainly what she read. Yeah, but no, there's nothing a suicide note. But what happens is that William comes back to the tent, and he opens the tent, sees her reading, mm-hmm. and knows what she's read, mm-hmm. and then takes off running. And takes off running. She chases after him, but. Mm-hmm. What happens is he keeps running right over the edge of the cliff. Yeah, yeah. And that's our first death. Mm-hmm. Right. And everyone reacts to it in different ways. Mm-hmm. The mother one way, the stepfather another way, the biological father and his mm-hmm. new bride another way, and the brother. And the brother, yeah. brother takes it hardest, I guess we would say. Yeah, because the brother is a psychotherapist. Right. And imagine, you know, he's a psychotherapist and his own brother kills himself and uh he can't you know he can't save him he knew that everybody always knew the boy was troubled but um he, but charlie the psychotherapist you know, really didn't know the extent to which he was that he was troubled and has taken this as a devastating blow and has himself sunk into a terrible depression as a result. And he's not good as a therapist. He's losing. He's clients. yeah. I mean, he would have been. He was good before that happened. Right. But he's losing clients, and he he just really has kind of given up on life. Right. And it hasn't helped that his wife has left him. Well, that's why she's left him. Is that that's she India. she watched it? Yeah, India watched him for two years doing that, and then and then she just couldn't take it anymore. And uh, it was like, you know, sometimes the life you save has to be your own. So she she leaves him. Um, and and so now he is alone in this um, Art Deco apartment they have in um, in Spitalfields. And uh, interestingly, not that far from the market where Barbara right, Havers right. buys her, her uh, sees the poster for Claire Abbott's or where the author signing. has her place. Yes, 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 exactly. It's right. all in the same area of town. Now, what happens here is we may not get them together at the end so that, the, you know, you can go, you did, were here, and you were there, and where were you? Like, you know, the classic old mystery. Oh, yeah, yes. yeah. But we do have a uh, coalescing moment, which is the memorial for the dead, for William, mm. that has been set up in a, a portion of donated land i guess that she is that correct well it's a uh it's an it's down below claire abbott's house in shaftesbury where there is a natural spring mm-hmm. and um it's an undeveloped piece of land and the city agrees to let her place this memorial with a little park there as okay. long as you know she's willing to pay for it which she sure, is which she is so that's what she yeah so it's in that moment when they are at the when they do the memorial and when they um do the unveiling of the memorial that all of the the characters end up in the same spot really and at the all same the emotions time. are raw and mm-hmm. come out and reclamations are thrown and there's actually a physical confrontation mm-hmm. where uh, the the divorced husband ends up flat on the ground mm-hmm. right uh, no one handles themselves particularly well no because because the everybody thinks something else has happened for when Francis Goldacre gets there with his um with his wife Suma Lee um they believe that they've been invited to come mm-hmm. 
And indeed, they have been invited to come, but they haven't been invited to come by the people who sent out the invitations. They've been invited to come by um, the fact that um, Lily Foster, William's girlfriend, girlfriend, has been living in Shaftesbury because she believes that his mother is responsible – bears responsibility for his death, and she wants the mother to pay. So she has been doing whatever she can to make her life miserable for the uh, for a long time now. And uh, so she knows about this because she knows whatever, whatever these guys are doing, she's on top of it. And she's the one who has Francis Goldacre come to the, uh, to the memorial, the unveiling of the memorial. And as I say, he thinks he's been invited by Claire. And he's there with his new wife. And he's, yeah, he thinks they've both been invited. Right. And Caroline thinks that Claire invited them to humiliate her. Alistair wants him to get the hell out of there because he can see how upset Caroline's mm-hmm. wife is. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Charlie is angry because of the way his father has uh, acted. And so the altercation goes on from there. Okay. And only India knows that uh, that Lily Foster is also there. Right. But Lily says to India that Caroline needs to be punished, and she wants to make sure that's going to happen. Right, right. Uh, which, you know, immediately when we're reading a, a novel like this, we say, oh, okay, there's somebody saying something that maybe when Caroline gets killed later, we'll know, right? Mm, yeah, yes, yes. yes, exactly. And... Um, and then she gives an unopened mailer to Charlie, and Charlie's advised by his mother to give it to the police and not even look at it. Yeah, because Lily has been doing all kinds of things to torment them. She's, uh, you know, left, as I recall, I'm trying to think, I know at one point she leaves a dead cat's head mm-hmm. on their front porch. She's done all kinds of things. She's also been um, really lurking around the property, and she's had what's called an ASBO filed against her, an antisocial behavior order. And that means that she has to completely keep her distance from the family or she'll end up going to the j- going to jail. So when India... What we call a restraining order. Yeah. Yes. So when India gets this, Lily has this um, large heavy-duty mailing envelope, and she hands it to India and says, give this to Charlie. And so India does that. But, of course, considering all the things that Lily's done so far to Caroline uh, and to Alistair, Caroline begs Charlie not to open it, to take it directly to the police, and that's what Charlie does. So let me go and do what I, with those horrible questions that you hate. Um, I'm going to start by doing something, then play something, Thing to you, if you don't mind. It's uh, Diana Rigg. Tonight marks an interesting break with tradition here at Mystery. Our story, A Great Deliverance, was written by an American. Yes, Americans can also write detective novels, although author Elizabeth George takes her cues not from the hard-boiled fiction of Dashiell Hammett, but from the cozy mysteries we associate with Agatha Christie and Dorothy L. Sayers. A Great Deliverance is set in England, in fact, and it features a very British detective, a moody, erudite gentleman named Thomas Lindley, who works for Scotland Yard. He's more than a gentleman, actually. He's the 8th Earl of Asherton. Schooled at Eton and Oxford, Lindley drives a Bentley and owns a posh flat in Eton Terrace. He does feel a certain amount of aristocratic guilt. We wouldn't like him otherwise. 
To round Lindley off, Elizabeth George has paired him with a true working-class heroine, Sergeant Barbara Havers, who has all the charm and grit of sandpaper. Lindley might be to the manor born, but Havers still lives with her ageing parents in Bayswater. She's struggled most of her life with poverty, sexism, illness, things she assumes Lindley only knows about from books. They're strange bedfellows, but they do have complementary strengths. Now, in their first adventure together, they'll discover whether they have what it takes, not just to solve crime, but to overcome the barriers between them. Um, when you saw that, remember, I'm going to have you go back. I think it's 1997. I don't like even that. remember. It was a long Did time you ago. See yeah. that? The first night, I assume you went and saw, because there was a version that broadcast in the BBC first, mm-hmm. and then on Mystery here. Some some months later. So did I? Did I see it on mystery? That's the question. Well, I do you had, remember Diana Rigg. Um, yes, yes, I I do remember Diana Rigg. I just don't remember if I saw it on on, on video. Well, that's done for mystery, not for I don't think for the British show. What is? This, you mean Diana the Rigg? People talking in the front. You lost me on that. Well, they they when it comes over to this side, they get somebody to come up and do these narrations. Uh, you know, Alistair Cook kind of things. Is oh yeah, but that but Diana Rigg did that for United States. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. 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 So what I'm saying is that I don't recall whether I actually watched it on television ah. or whether they had sent me the um, you know, the finished tape of what it was going to look like when it was on television. Okay, but I'm I know going I saw somewhere it. with this. Okay, there's at least five errors in what she says about. Yes. The book. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't drive a Bentley. Well, initially he does drive a Bentley. In but he book? doesn't any longer. In a great deliverance, yeah, he did, he uh, did drive he a doesn't Bentley. In the thing we're watching on TV, though. No, no, and it was really interesting. The reason why he doesn't <laughs> is so interesting is that um, they're too expensive. <laughs> well, that's probably one reason. But the producer actually went to talk to uh, the um, Earl of Ross Lynn, um, who is a policeman, huh. and uh, and so. He was, um, for a while, um, a detective inspector in the town of, of Slough, which is near Windsor and Eton. And so she went to talk to him to get the idea of, you know, well, what is it like when an earl becomes a policeman? And she discovered that he drove some beat-up car. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what it was. So she decided, well, we're going to have Lindley. He can't possibly drive a Bentley. We'll have him drive the exact car that the Earl of Ross Lynn drives. So that's why he drives the car he drives in the first book. Which is a Peugeot. I mean, in the first, uh, first episode. Right. Yeah. Right. And then he graduates to another car later on. I a Bristol. Is it a Bristol? Bristol 510. Yeah. Well, that's I a think very, that might be the third one. Well, whatever. That's the one they only make a hundred of them ever. Yeah, you know, a very rare car. Yeah. yeah, and so, but there was one in between where they could never get the damn car started. <laughs> well, they and, only build a hundred of them. Yeah. No, that wasn't the <laughs> Bristol. It was another car. It was a blue car because the Bristol's kind of a in the, in the series. It's sort of a brownish color, brownish isn't it? Red, yeah. Yeah. No, this is – in the meantime, they had this interim blue car that they could never get started. It was a nightmare for them. So then they went to the Bristol. In the meantime, in the books, Lindley was driving his Bentley until I could figure out of a way – figure a way to get rid of it. <laughs> because when I started these books, I didn't know – you know, I wasn't – first of all, I did 
didn't know I'd get published. And secondly, I didn't know what kind of cars people drove in England. So I right. only knew a right. couple cars. One was a Rolls Royce. The other was a Bentley. Right. And Which I are basically the same car with I, a different But radiator. I didn't know right. that. I thought, well, I can't have Lindley drive a Rolls Royce. That's just obnoxious. I'll have him drive this Bentley thing. Yeah. And I d- later on realized it was a Rolls Royce with a B on the front. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so exactly. that was so easy. And, and a. And it's a not a chrome well, radiator. It's a nickel-plated radiator. Okay. Well, you're obviously a car guy. Well, but now – At least the old ones were. I had to finally – I finally found a way to get rid of that car in um, with no one as witness when in order to save his life, Barbara has to crash the Bentley, which right. is – that was a wonderful moment when I realized, oh, thank God, <laughs> I finally found a way to get rid of this car. Um, and so then I had the opportunity to give him uh, to to do get him a new car, which I which I did, and now he drives a um, a Healy Elliott, which I saw um, when I was doing uh, work for a book called Careless and Red down in Cornwall. I saw a picture of it, and I thought that's it, that's mm-hmm. the car. Mm-hmm. So that's what he drives now. Very fun. You've said on you've had other interviews about this, so I'm not going to belabor this. But you know what? When the BBC came to you and said, "Can we make this?" and by the way, you know, you're giving up your rights, and we're going to create stories. So we've come up with what is called I'm trying to remember the exact word here. Basically, there's competing um, storylines. Oh yeah. Where what happens? The first what two or three followed your books. Yeah. Well, closely. they. I think they did. They did every book. Um, excluding what came before he shot her. Oh, no, that doesn't, yeah, that's after what I'm going to say anyway. Excuse me. They did every book up to uh, With No One as Witness. Mm-hmm. And um, I wouldn't let them do With No One as Witness because they what they wanted to do was to do this huge story about a serial killer and Lindley losing his wife, and they wanted to do the whole thing in, in 75 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I said, it, "No, you can't. You can't be done. I don't want it done that way." And they said, "Well, let let us let us read the book. We'll let you know." They read the book and they said, "Oh, yes, it's not a problem. We can do that." And I said, "Well, no, then. Yeah, I, I won't give you the book. But if you would like to kill off Helen in another way, because Helen dies in that in mm-hmm, that book, mm-hmm. if you would like to come up with a script to kill her in another way, I'll be happy to entertain that." So she's killed in a street shooting. So she's right. killed. On, I think she's killed yeah. in a in the in the building. I think she's wow. in the in the building, and um, so that was the way they that was the way they went with it. And then they asked if if I would allow them to make their own Lindley shows uh, with Lindley and Havers, and um, I said that yes, they could go ahead and do that as long as I had complete control over the script. And that they couldn't do a script that I didn't approve of. So when we got to that point, I actually had more creative control than I had when they were doing my books because they really wanted to do – they wanted to use the characters. So when it says on the newer ones, based on characters created by. Yeah. Yes. 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 So those were all scripts that I approved, but they they came up with the stories. So that second set, I don't even remember how many they did. Um, Five years, I think. But I don't remember. But there were different numbers in each year, so I don't yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't remember how many they did. But the that group was was theirs, and they knew that there were certain parameters involved in using the characters. You know, they couldn't make any big changes, which I really never did. But they could do that frisson between Barbara and Lindley. Well, they yes, but they were doing that early on. 
You know, and I, I asked him about it. I said, why are you doing that? And right. I said, are you aware? So I said, are you aware that this makes it look like Lindley and, and Habers might have some kind of romantic thing? And they said, oh, yeah, but we're just doing that. We're just doing that because we want to catch uh, We're just fun. Viewers. We're funning with the – we're funning right. funnin with gonna the They're going to go viewers. pick up your book and say, wait a minute, where's the sex? Exactly, where's the sex? yeah, yeah. It's there. It's just not with those two characters, Exactly, right? yeah. yeah. There's several instances in this book which are quite nice. I, I thought – what's the word I'm going to use? Lovingly written, mm. yeah, between Alistair and his wife or his girlfriend. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, would you agree? Well, that's nice. To, I, mean, I appreciate you're saying that. It's hard for me to know whether it's lovingly okay. written As because a man I'm the writer. It, I I yeah. appreciated that. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Thank I you. I think he he deserved better than he had. But anyway, so we're going to talk a, a bit about your YA novels. Um. They they star Becca King. Is um, she someone you know, a younger you, or no, 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 no not just at all. Created whole cloth. Yes, yes. You didn't see her on the street and say that's the protagonist in my book. No, I, I generally don't do that for any of my characters. No, um, Becca. Well, okay, is a- let's stop there. So, where do your characters come from? Um, well, they come from my um, they come from my imagination. Occasionally, I might see a particular um, physical quality in a character that I would then translate into a person, excuse me, that I would then translate to a character. Mm-hmm. For example, when I was in seventh grade many, many years ago, um, I went to school with a boy who uh, had one leg shorter than the other. Mm-hmm. And um, and so that kind of thing stuck with me, stayed with me, and then I in the creation of Alistair, that then comes out once again. So I think there's certain things from your own life that right. ultimately find their way into books, even if you're not uh, consciously aware of them doing that. But I, I haven't consciously set out to uh, make a character look exactly, a person look exactly like somebody that I've seen on the street. Now, having said that, I will tell you that, that when I was in England doing research for the book I'm about to start working on, uh-huh. I was watching this really scurrilous uh, English talk show, and uh, I read a, a review of it that said that somebody said it was like bear baiting. Um, it's, it's so horrible. But they, uh, it's one of those, it's like Jerry Springer was. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. So they bring in these really, really kind of loathsome, uneducated, ill-formed people who attack each other. But they looked so unusual that I got my digital camera out and took pictures of the screen hmm. because I thought, well, these are some real characters that I would would probably never think of having this particular you know, look to right, them, but it'd be right. really useful for a character later on. So that's really the first time I've done anything like that. So we're back to your uh, young adult novels. So when, why did you decide? Thanks. Why did you decide to do a, create a different series for a different um, audience? There were a couple of reasons why. The first had to do with um, the fact that I had read the. Uh, the first of the Twilight books. Uh-huh. And in reading that book, I recognized that the author had never been to the Pacific Northwest mm-hmm. and and had never been to Forks because it, it's, uh, it was a very clever idea to find the rainiest place in the United States so that your vampires could come out in the daytime. I right. It was really right. pretty clever. But the problem was that, that um, 
Forks has very little to recommend it as a as a location for a book. And so but people started going to Forks because they wanted to see where Edward and Bella were from. You know, only to get there and see. So you know. the Chamber of Commerce said, came to you and said, "Set it on Whidbey Island." No, no. <laughs> no so no, what no. I thought, what I thought was, how neat. What if I could write? What if I wrote a book that took place right here, where I live in in Langley, and uh, and people read it and were sort of charmed and came, you know, came to see Whidbey Island, especially Langley, which certainly needs as many tourists as it can possibly get. They're always, you know, shops are always on the teetering on the edge of going out of business um, because it is a summertime place. And so in the winter, it's very difficult there. Um, So, but what I've done in the books is that every single place in the books actually exists, every single place. So if people were to, you know, come to Whidbey Island, they would see the doghouse. It's still there. In the first book, that's where Becca has to hang out. When, and the uh, the Cliff Motel, it's not called the Cliff Motel, but it is a motel, and it is exactly where I said it was. So you can have book so tours around all the village. Stuff. Well, you know what? A teacher um, um, from across uh, what we call over town from the, from across the water from Whidbey brought her 7th grade class there they had read the book and she lives on Whidbey Island so she knew all the places were real so the kids read the book and then she brought them over mm-hmm. and took them to all the places and then I met them later at the library and right. we, and we talked and it was really this great experience for the kids uh, their only confusion was that they thought because the places really existed that I was writing a true story <laughs> which I thought was pretty <laughs> Yes, yes. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Uh, Elizabeth George and her novel, A Banquet of Consequences, the newest Lindley novel. Thank you for having me, Gil. Good to be here. You have been listening to Word by Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media's KRCB-FM. Today's conversation was with Elizabeth George, creator of 19 best-selling Inspector Lindley Mysteries and two that none published Inspector Lindley Mysteries, (laughs) which may come out sometime, featuring Scotland Yard's Detective Inspector Lindley and his down-to-earth partner, Detective Havers. uh, Detective Sergeant Havers. During the show, Elizabeth George introduced us to her latest book, a banquet of consequences and shared insights into her distinctive writing style. We are pleased that both Sean Knight and Jesse Fancushin could engineer today's show. Sean is also KRCB FM's program manager and is aided by Wendy Nicholson. Our theme music is by Bill Conti, and I am your host, Gil Manser. We want to invite you to turn in for a seasonal tradition for December's Word by Word show on Sunday afternoon, December 13th, as we once again unwrap some exciting ideas for gift books with Copperfield's knowledgeable book buyers, Cheryl Cotelier and Michelle Bella. Until then, in the spirit of the Inspector Lindley Mysteries, we share this blessing from the British Harvest Festival with our listeners. For the gift of creation, the enormous and the tiny, for a refreshment, for a challenge, for gentle beauty, for fierce splendor, for all the variety of place and season, We give thanks.